Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous episode is with Jonathan Fields. He's one of the first podcasts I started listening to, actually, referred to as the Good Life Project. He is the author of the most recent book, Spark, Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes Us Come Alive and How to Live a Good Life. He also wrote Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. He's been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, CNN, Vogue. There's like a a long, long list of different media outlets that he's been featured on. I greatly appreciate John's mind. I feel like he's like part philosopher, part psychologist, part entrepreneur monk. Really interesting guy. I appreciate him very much. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. If you do, and you'd like more people to hear conversations like this, one of the easy things that you could do would be leave a review on wherever you're listening to this. iTunes would be a likely place. I want to thank Erica Bushwell for leaving the review. Awesome podcast exclamation point. Aaron, host of the Align podcast, highlights all aspects of nutrition and more in this can't miss podcast. The host and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone who listens. Thank you, Erica Bushwell. I appreciate y'all so much. And yeah, thanks guys just for telling your friends. Thanks for following on the journey. Hopefully the information from these episodes are being implemented into your lives. Hopefully it's stirring up your day in a positive way. Let's get into it with a good man, Jonathan Fields. Have you gotten into any rock climbing since being in Boulder, Colorado? No, you know, I'm hiking pretty much every day. Because uh, where I live, I'm 10 minutes to a trailhead. So literally like I walk six blocks and I'm just on dirt. So I'm usually doing that twice a day. Like I'll do first thing in the morning and then like a late afternoon wind down. I'll just kind of like watch the late day sun behind the mountains. So I'm not sure about my climbing days, to be honest with you. My, my left shoulder's been twice reconstructed. So I'm trying to figure out sort of like uh, how my body will handle it. But I'll probably start to play with it a bit indoors in a more controlled environment first. And then we'll see after that. Sure. You're going to go to the Boulder Rock Gym, the BRG? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Boulder's my old my old home. I lived out, I went to the Rolf Institute. I lived out there for like five years. Yeah, yeah. It's a good place. Yeah. Where are you at out there? Right now, we've been bouncing around a lot, but right now we're sort of like North Boulder-ish, right in the middle. Yeah. Amazing. By Wonderland Lake? Is that what it's called? No, we were up there for the first five months of this year, we were up by Wonderland Lake. And now we're actually, we're more south, like Ideal Market. Yeah, like yeah, the pharmacy down there. So like we're literally like a block away from there right now. So so what was what's been the transition to your nomadicism? Yeah, I grew up just outside of New York and lived in the city for my entire adult life for thirty years, and then twenty twenty hit, and the beginning of twenty twenty in New York City was a horrifying place. We were sort of like the first really big scary place in the country when it came to the pandemic and you know new york was you didn't want to go outside we didn't have anywhere near the level of information that we have now and we hit a point where our daughter who had just started college came back to us we were kind of all hunkering down like living in in our apartment and while the city was entirely shut down for a long time and uh part of that was also after six years of recording the podcast in person in our studio in New York. And that was part of our ethos. It's like we would only record in person, very similar to you. It's like, you know, the nature of the conversation is a little bit different. We had to re-examine that because we couldn't do it. The last guest we had in the studio was actually Macy Gray, who came off the stage at the Beacon Theater the night before and then showed up, you know, at our place 
the next morning. We were sort of like uncomfortably in this confined space together. We kind of figured at that point it was probably okay, which it was. And she left and then we shut the studio down a couple of days later. And once we started to realize, okay, so this actually isn't going to be possible for the indefinite future, start to figure out, okay, so what is, what does the evolution of the show look like? You know, so Good Life Project had been this thing, which was always in person, even in the very early days when we were filming, you know, our, our ethos was broadcast quality production and in person, but we couldn't do it. So we started to transition over to remote. And then a couple of things happened. I started to realize that, you know, while there's tremendous disruption and devastation and a lot of scary stuff happening, what does this transition give us? What are, where's the possibility side of this? And turns out we were able to figure out a lot and get way closer to what I thought was possible by creating a virtual container for conversations. And once we start to figure that out, once I start to realize that I was still able to create the same level of intimacy and safety, we started to think, huh, well, one of the reasons that we were still in New York was because kind of had a strategic advantage from a business standpoint, being in New York, anyone we wanted to talk to was going to be in New York at some point. So that was a big part of the reason that we were still there beyond raising a kid in the city who's a pure city kid and has a mad passionate love affair with the city. Like that was important too. And once we realized that we actually could do what we want to do and we didn't have to be tethered there. And at the same time, it's really expensive to live in New York City and we were paying to live in a city that was not the city that it was. We decided to run an experiment. So at the end of September, we let go of our apartment, which we loved and had been in for a long time and headed out to Boulder, Colorado for what we thought would be two to three months, just kind of like kicking around, get some fresh air, live outdoors, you know, and, and be out of the confines of that particular space. And two to three months turned into four or five months, turned into nine months turned into me handing over my New York driver's license one day and getting a Colorado driver's license, which was mildly devastating to my identity. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I remember when she sort of like took my New York license at the DMV in Colorado and she like took a big punch and just like took a chunk out of it. She's like, basically, okay, so this is inactive now. And I was like, wait, what? I didn't, I didn't, you can't have two different licenses from two different states. And she's like, nah. And yeah, that has transitioned into us being out here. And, you know, so as of, as I talked to you, like we are sort of like officially Colorado residents and, and we're going to figure out what the future looks like from here. But, you know, there's an amazing amount of grace that's come along with it. a lot of disruption, a lot of getting used to being an entirely new space, but I love nature and I'm, my favorite thing is to move, you know, in nature. So just knowing that I have the ability to literally, you know, if I'm recording you know, two interviews in a day, which we'll sometimes do on a production day, I can wake up in the morning, be on a trail then sit down, you know, and be in production mode and then go back out, clear my head, go for like a nice hike or scramble on some rocks and then come back. And there's a lot of blessing around the transition. We're still trying to figure it out in a really big way, but, and the community here is incredible too. You know, it's, there's so much creativity and innovation going on. So it's kind of fun to be a part of that. Yeah, there's a bunch of things that stand out with that. The, the one is, I think, pre-March 2020, whenever that was, there was much more of an illusion of, of certainty with me and, and likely you and a lot of people. And it was an interesting transition into this really deep uncertainty, especially for like that first couple of months. And I wonder for you, did you have like a peak moment of uncertainty during that time frame or like a peak moment of like fear or things of the sort? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was late spring in New York, you know, like April, May in New York <clears throat> was really a terrifying, terrifying moment because there were close to a thousand people a day dying in New York, which, you know, it feels like we've lived so many lifetimes since then. And, and it's expanded out and rippled and moved around the country and the world at this point that and it was a, a truly terrifying moment. And there was a huge amount of uncertainty. Like I said, our daughter was, her college basically shut down in 36 hours and told all the kids to move out and go home. She happened to have been in college then in Colorado. So she came back to New York with us. And then uh, we all came back to Colorado together in the fall. And it, that moment was, was terrifying because I didn't know if I would have a livelihood. I didn't know. And I was terrified for the safety of, of my family and my friends and, and my city at that point. And we had no idea. And bizarrely, at the same time, I had sold my next book in March of last year. So while all of this is happening, literally like New York is shutting down, our kid comes back home with us. I don't know if our business is going to be shutting down or not. You know, will we be able to maintain it? And, and even if we figure out production, we're an ad supported endeavor, you know? So like are the advertisers going to vanish, which very often happens after a major global disruption, um, everyone stops spending. So uh, everything was completely up in the air for me. And like I said, at the, uh, the end of February, we started shopping my next book. And the, the first week of March, we're having meetings with all these publishers in New York. And on a Monday, we're hugging. On a Tuesday, we're handshakes. You know, By Wednesday, we're elbow bumping. By Friday, it's like uncomfortably bowing from across the room because <laughs> nobody knew what the deal was. So fortunate. There was great interest. The book went to auction and sold the following week. And so it was this really bizarre, I was going to say like a dual state of like joy and amazement and excitement and also abject fear and just living in a place of profound uncertainty all at the same time. And then knowing that I actually had to, had to, and had the, the privilege to sit down and go into my creative cave and work on a book that was really, really close to my heart. So it was a lot of spin and a huge amount of uncertainty and the stakes in almost every domain were really high. So it wasn't like low-grade uncertainty and low stakes, everything was kind of dialed up to 11. Yeah. Did it change your story of your identity? Obviously, you changed from a New Yorker to a to a Coloradan. I, I think that that's... The, yeah, that was big. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that's our safe place is, this, is kind of like the castle that we've built and the story that we've built around ourselves. And to tear that down or even start the process of disassembling typically is followed by a contraction and a resistance. And then eventually, depending upon the level of, of demolition, there will likely come some level of a surrender, you know, and then from there, it's like, okay, well, the door closes now, inevitably other doors will open, even though going into as the door is closing, like, there's no way this is it. This is over. Yeah. Yes to all of that, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, 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 and sometimes we step into that place of our own choice. We're sort of like, you know, what, I'm, I'm not happy. There's no sense of meaning. I'm disconnected from what I'm doing or the place that I am. And we just, we make a decision to dismantle our current reality and then hope we can figure out how to rebuild it. So it's better. You know, this wasn't a voluntary decision. This was basically like, Hey, you're thrown into this. I mean, on the one hand, the book was a voluntary decision. You know, like we, proactively went out and did that. But every other part of the circumstance was not what any of us had planned on. And in the middle of it, like I had like really genuine concerns for the, the, both the, the mental health and the physical health of me and my family. And, and I had no sense of control. You know, one, one of the ways that we move through windows of high levels of uncertainty where the stakes are high is if we can somehow find a locus of control. Like we have some belief that even like a tiny bit of it, we have a sense of agency over. And, 
you know, I had that with my creative process with the book. I felt like I entirely lost it with the podcast until we figured out how to reimagine our production. And in terms of physical and mental well-being, that was out the window. You know, I was like just complete state of surrender. Um, so in, in a way, I think actually having the book and knowing that that was one thing that I had a substantial amount of control over, it was probably what I would term a certainty anchor. You know, a thing where I knew I could wake up every day and there was something that I knew that I was working on. I knew I was on deadline. I knew how to do it because this is not my first book. And it kind of made me, I think it was a bit of a blessing. There was some fortunate timing in there where it's like as everything was else was falling apart, I had this one thing that I could keep returning to. I think that that's a sensation that I've experienced quite a bit, a sensation of in my life in general, sensation of aimlessness or a sensation of, you know, lack of stability and it's a it's a really lonely, uncomfortable sensation, you know, and then something else will pop up and then you feel good for a little bit. And then, you know, that those feelings will creep back in. And I think that the, you know, the, the, the lockdowns was like a very acute example of something that is lurking in the background of most people's lives in general. And then that sensation of a lack of certainty or being out of control, it's like now all of a sudden it's on the forefront. You know, and, and I wonder f- for you, if you have any, in your own experience, like how do we find passion in the first place? It's a lot of pressure, the sensation of like, you got to find your passion. Like, I don't know what the hell my passion is, man. <laughs> You're yeah. stressing me out with this passion talk. <laughs> I'm with you. And um, I'm one of those people who actually doesn't believe that people have a singular passion. My sense is that we have many passions that are an expression of a deeper impulse that tends to be more consistent through line, through life. But yeah, you know, like in the middle of that, for me, it was a big, another huge certainty anchor for me has been my practice. You know, I'm, I'm a meditator. So I wake up every morning and like clockwork, you know, I sit for 25 minutes and then I do a breathing practice. And okay. that I'm actually really thankful that that practice had been in the making for a decade before all of this, right. because I think it would have been way harder to begin given the volume of spin that was happening in my head. Whereas actually uh, the fact that I had you know, like actually started into it in late 2010 was something that it allowed me to turn to it. And I had the skill set and the practice to dial down a lot of the spin in my head and basically like wake up, find a state of relative calm, and then put my head down and do the work I needed to do. Mm. In your most recent book, Sparked, I think it's a really beautiful manual of sorts for navigating people into kind of like repositioning their focus. And I think sometimes we're not the right tool for the job and we're kind of trying to force ourselves into that position because that's what we were told we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be a doctor or an accountant or, you know, whatever, whatever that the story of success that's been built up all of our lives. We're like really slamming that, you know, we're on the throttle in that direction and it just doesn't feel right. And I think oftentimes that leads to, you know, midlife crises and people doing crazy things at some point. How did you come upon that idea in the, in the first place? And if you could break down a little bit about the archetypes and, and the book. Happy to. So I've been fascinated with this question of what it means to live a good life for really my entire adult life, you know, and it's funny, I was reflecting recently, um, I'm 55, but when I was in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, what I wanted to study. And for chunk of it, I actually thought seriously about psychology and performance psychology, because I've always been fascinated by human potential and why we make the decisions that we make or not. I don't remember, I was trying to remember why I walked away from that, because I think it actually would have been a really rewarding pursuit for me. But the question has been in me for my entire adult life. I don't know why, it just has, I've been drawn to it. 
you know, and it's led to different businesses in the health and wellness field. It's led to over the last decade, you know, like producing Good Life Project and writing books that in different ways touch down in it. And really the seeds of the current work, I was, I was trying to really trace it back recently. And what I've realized is that they were really originally planted probably back around 9-11 when I was in New York. And, you know, like I, I, I knew a friend that didn't come home that day and it really rocked me. That experience really, really brought me to my knees in a lot of ways. And it also made me question, you know, what I was doing with my life. It made me question what we, you know, like a society tend to say yes to and no to in the context of work, because it's a thing that consumes most of our waking hours, you know, and, and that moment made me really think about how I want to bring myself to the world. I had just signed uh, a six-year lease for a floor in a building for what I hoped would become uh, one of the biggest yoga centers in New York the day before. And I woke up the next morning, you know, and this was happening. So I also had to really revisit whether I was going to move forward with this new endeavor in what was an absolutely devastating time in New York. And, and I decided that I had to in part because I was like, this feels like the thing I can't not do right now, a place of movement and healing and community and breath at a time where the city needed it more than ever. And that that was an incredible experience. You know, like that grew into this big, lush community, you know, with a big staff and a giant international community. And it was really powerful and it planted the seed, you know, and I was teaching, you know, so I taught for seven years also before I ended up selling the, the company at the end of 2008. And the experience of that was really profound. And that really planted my seed around curiosity, around work and meaning and purpose and joy. But it grew more to like a central question for me more recently over the last five years or so when I got really curious about the way that we show up at work. And I started wondering whether there were, whether we each had a deeper impulse for effort that gives us the feeling of purpose and meaning and flow and joy, and whether there was actually a mappable set of these impulses that existed that was fairly universal across everyone. I had no idea if the answer would be yes to that. Um, so I literally started, you know, like taking a giant list of jobs and titles and industries and deconstructing and basically asking, you know, like, what are the fundamental ways that we exert ourselves in the context of this? And I kept going down the list and distilling and distilling. And these, sure enough, set of impulses towards effort or towards work kept showing up over and over and over again, but in different balances and different patterns. And I started to realize that these things existed in nearly all jobs and roles and titles and also in people. And then I started asking everybody, you know, once I identified these impulses, how they were showing up in their lives and gathering a lot of just like uh, personal data around it. And I started to also realize that each one of these impulses, and there are 10 of them, they each also have a, a unique set of behaviors and quirks and tendencies and preferences that tend to wrap around them that form archetypes. And I started calling them sparkotypes because it's kind of a fun way to say the archetype for work that sparks you. Um, and then I wanted, I wanted to be able to test and validate or invalidate these at a much higher level. So we spent 2018 developing an assessment that anybody could interact with. We you know, put it up online, we made it available. We've since iterated and refined it a number of times because I wanted to, I wanted like large numbers of people to interact with these ideas and to get a huge amount of feedback. And when we came out of beta with that assessment, the response was incredible. We're, we're, as I 
talk to you now. Probably I get closing in around 600,000 people who've taken the assessment, over 30 million data points derived from it, and a mountain of stories and use cases and applications. So we have really fascinating quantitative data and qualitative data that have gone into understanding, validating, and refining these archetypes and all the different patterns we see wrapped around them now. And it's been incredible to see how people are interacting with them and sharing the sparkotypes. And that eventually, you know, led to a moment where I said, okay, so there's a massive volume of intel that's building up in my head largely that we need to extract because there's only one of me. <laughs> and, and I was getting peppered with a lot of questions all day, every day. So, you know, it came time to write the book around them, and which is the book you mentioned, Sparked, where essentially I took everything that I've learned and just distilled it all into, you know, like 10 deep dive explorations of each of these 10 different sparkotypes and how they show up in the world. And it's been incredible to see that go out into the world now. And, and, and I've worked with over the years now, everyone from the executive leadership team, you know, at a global enterprise with 250,000 employees to startups to see how these things apply in the context, you know, both of just individual personal expression and also leadership and engagement and all those different things. And, and even personal relationships now, we're getting all these stories back. People are saying, hey, yeah, I took the assessment and then I like read all about it. And then it landed so true that I told my partner and then I told my whole family or I told all of my students if I'm a teacher because you know, go take it and then let's share because we'll have the ability to really know ourselves much more differently and deeper. So the way that it's expanding out, the ripple, which I like never expected, has been really profound to see over the last couple of years. Yeah, there's a bit from Ram Dass of he's talking about how he came into this world. We all come to this world in our, our spacesuits. And for him, his unique spacesuit, he felt kind of like it didn't fit right growing up and it felt like it was kind of twisted a little bit just didn't really feel comfortable inside of his spacesuit. and then people would talk to him and they'd give him compliments and say wow that's a really nice suit man great suit and you have this reflection about the story of your suit and then you know he goes to see a psychoanalyst and he says you know if you pay me a, a pittance then I'll, I'll teach you how to wear my suit and he kind of gives you these new stories about who he's supposed to be and i think that there's really deep health mental emotional physiological cellular implications to being in the right place you know and if yeah. you feel this sensation of displacement or out of place and that's the way that one is navigating their life for 10 20 30 you know their whole life it's tough you know? it's really tough and like you said that's such a great story also because so many of us we have this feeling we're like okay so something's not right something's off like Either, you know, I feel no sense of purpose, what I'm doing, or I'm just like, you know, like there's this level of pervasive discontent or, or anxiety or, but we're not entirely sure where it's coming from. So we keep swapping jobs and titles and roles and industries to try and figure it out. And relationships. And relationships for sure. And it's funny because the analogy that, that just popped into my mind was it's like we're riding a horse, right? And the horse is going really fast towards some predefined endpoint very often, which we didn't set in motion, but we're on the horse. And we keep trying to change the saddle as we're riding it and wondering why like we're not feeling any different because like the problem is we're actually on the wrong horse, you know, but we never, we think it's the saddle. So, and which is the surface thing. It's like us trying to swap jobs and locations and relationships, never realizing there's actually a deeper misalignment 
you know, that's going on and we can swap all the other stuff and maybe it's a little more, more comfortable. You're like, Hey, maybe if I have a really plush saddle with some like gel in it, you know, like, I'm, it's, yeah, it's going to be okay. But at the same time, it's just never going to give us the feeling that we want. You know, it may take a little of the friction away, but it's never going to drop us into that place where we feel like we're actually doing the thing we're here to do. And that discontent, that malaise, that unhappiness, that lack of meaning finally resolves. Yeah. I heard it from Tony Robbins, like, make sure you're not, you're climbing up the ladder your whole life and then you get to the top and you realize that you're you're on the wrong ladder yeah. you're going up the wrong building and you're like oh crap you know which is great and that's i mean that's what life is it's, it's comprised of a whole bunch of false summits and you get to the top of one and then eventually maybe you start to learn that like okay don't anticipate this being the one you know like and then eventually probably you'll come back into presence and all the things that yogis and you know spirituality and all the old texts have been saying for, for thousands of years yeah, for sure. And also don't beat yourself up if you get to the top of it and you realize that you're on the wrong ladder. I mean, I think that's a big, like a lot of people will get to that place and then they're like, oh man, I'm such an idiot. Like I've spent so much time and money and so much of my life doing this one thing, which is not, it's like, you know, we're all showing up and every day and doing the best we can with the information that we have. And the fact that, you know, maybe it takes you five years to like accomplish this big goal. And then you get there and realize it's not making you feel the way you want to feel. It's like, well, on the one hand, you could look at that and say, well, that's five years wasted. But then on the other hand, you could look at it and say, well, okay, so that that's five years of a stunning amount of insight and information and skill building and relationship building and understanding what matters to me and what doesn't matter to me. And the fact that I've now you know, achieved what I want to achieve and it's not giving me the feeling I thought, well, okay, so that's kind of a bummer. But it's not time wasted. Like this is time that has been profound as a learning experience if you allow yourself to then sit there and, and basically do the debrief on the time or do that analysis as you're going and then not hold yourself to the standard of absolute perfection. Like, you know, I, at 22, I have to know exactly where my life is pointed and pursue that and only that. And that is where the magic happens. Like we're all kind of fumbling, you know? And if the metric is, you know, like finding exactly the path for you and then you know like at the earliest parts of life and then staying on it and being perfect in that pursuit then we're pretty much all going to fail rather than just saying let's keep learning let's keep you know exploring new activities and pursuits let's bring more practices and tools into what we're doing and see what works for us and what doesn't and over time through a process we're going to keep getting closer and closer and learning more i mean i have to imagine it's not dissimilar to the way that you approach the body like you know like physiologically it's like every single person is completely different and you have yeah. frameworks and tools and approaches but you know you've got to try a lot of different things to try and really figure out like what is appropriate for anyone's unique history and physiology and kinesiology I want to take a moment and share a little tidbit on how to make your smoothies more bioavailable. So we are built to chew our fruit. When we are putting a bunch of fruit into a, into a blender and spinning it up, we are bypassing one of the primary components to digestion, which is mastication or chewing. What I will add to my smoothies is some of Eaton Hemp's unhulled hemp seeds. They are fantastic and delicious. They contain zinc, iron, and a plethora of micronutrients, and they're also a complete protein. So they contain all nine essential amino acids. Eaton Hemp Seeds, it's my favorite little snack to go to. They have multiple different flavors, and they're really lovely. The reason that I add some crunchy bits to a smoothie is when you chew, you release various different enzymes, amylases, that break down sugars. 
And so your mouth is a continuation of your intestines, essentially. It's a continuation of your digestive system. So add some chewy bits into there and it will vastly improve your digestion of the sugars in those smoothies. Apologize for that. Uh, you can grab yourself a bag of Eaton Hemp's hemp seeds over at eatonhemp.com slash align. You get yourself a sweet 20% discount. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P dot com slash align for 20% off. If you do not absolutely devour and love and demolish this product, they will just give you your money back. So there's a 30 day money back guarantee. So you got nothing to lose. And I'm just really love this stuff. I'm excited for you guys to try it. So jump over to eatonhemp.com slash align for 20% off. I also want to take a moment to thank BioOptimizers for supporting this podcast. BioOptimizers is one of the companies that I trust the most in this health wellness supplementation industry, and they have vastly improved my sleep quality. The way that they have done that is by me starting to use the BioOptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. What I really love about Magnesium Breakthrough is it contains all the different forms of magnesium wrapped up into one little capsule. So when you're getting different forms of magnesium at a grocery store or health food store or the internet, typically it's just gonna be one or a few different types. This is a full spectrum supplement. So it's got everything that you need wrapped up into one capsule. Why magnesium matters is it's largely efficient in modern day soil. Magnesium is incredibly important for muscular relaxation, muscular repair, function of your nervous system, thinking, cognitive function. Those are redundant, so obviously I could use a little bit more magnesium, uh, but it's really great for sleep. It's helped my sleep a lot. All you gotta do is take two capsules before you go to bed, You'll be amazed at how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. If you want to get yourself a sweet discount, 10% discount, you go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com slash align podcast. Use code align 10. You get yourself a sweet 10% discount. Also for a limited time, they'll be throwing in $50 worth of supplements for free for select purchases. That'd be P3. OM and mass sign. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash online podcast. Get yourself a 10% discount and a chance to win $50 worth of supplementation. I also want to thank Element for supporting the deliciousness and the absorption of my water. So for your water to be absorbed by your cells, it needs minerals. If you are drinking distilled water or something of the sort, you are stripping it of the vital components that allow your body to actually be able to process that hydration. So Element is a delicious packet, which contains three times the electrolytes as your average sports drink with any without any of the sugar or the synthetic BS. It contains exactly what you need to create energy in your body, which is sodium, potassium, and magnesium. That's sodium, potassium, and magnesium. Very simple, very easy, and all the flavors are absolutely fantastic and delicious. I know that you guys are going to dig it, and you can get yourself a free sample pack, which is so cool that you can just try it for free. You can go over to drinkelement.com forward slash line. That's drink, D-R-I-N-K, L-M-N-T, 
drinklmnt.com forward slash align. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash align. All you pay is five bucks for shipping and you'll get a sample pack of a couple of citrus, raspberry, orange, and also unflavored. And then if you do end up ever purchasing Element, they also have a money back guarantee. I believe it's 30 days. So if it does not improve your energy levels, does that make you feel better? It does not make you drink more water because it's delicious. And then get your money back. No big deal. No worries. No questions asked. So jump over to drinklmnt.com forward slash alive for a free sample pack. I think there's from a physical lens, I think there's something to creating the structure and the foundation to navigate the world safely, you know, and with enough support to not blow your joints out. Yeah. Um, and to be able to generate power and leverage and all of those things. And then eventually, or maybe from the get-go, depending upon the lifestyle that you've lived and the environment that you, you grew up around, you can get to a point where you do get lost in the moment. And if you go, all you need to do is hang out with a kid for 10 seconds, and you're like, aha, like they're doing all the fitness, all the problem solving, all the exercise, like the like, relationship, rapport building, like there's this, like trillions of bits of information and they don't even realize that they're doing anything, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, it's getting to that point that it's like, if we can arrive there, then that's beautiful. I think a lot of it's the culture that we've been steeped in, that we've been, that we've grown up in kind of turns us into a gear in a way. Yeah. You know, it teaches us how to, you know, study to pass the test, you know, the Scantron test. It doesn't really teach problem solving and creative thinking and things of the sort. Not to say that that's just an absolute, but in general, I, th I feel like we need to re-engage with that play aspect of ourselves and go outside of plays, not just kickball, plays conversation, plays business, plays, you know, it's, it can be infused into, into everything. Yeah. I, I love that. And I so agree with it. I love the analogy of like, when you're like a little kid, you know, I, I remember years ago, I was driving in my car. And I was listening to NPR and I heard this interview with David Crosby, like famed musician from Crosby, Stills, Nash. And he was reflecting back on his life. And, it, and this is a guy who's done everything. You know, like he's gone down every spiritual path. He's been with every guru on the planet. He's done every drug that you can imagine. And he's basically like, he's like, you know, and he was reflecting as like, literally, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to get the language right. But what effectively he said, he said, you know, I've learned more about how to live my life from watching toddlers play for 15 minutes than I have from like the wisest guru or teacher or experience in my entire life. It's like, you know, cause you watch them and like, as a general rule, they're fully present. They're living in joy. They're not fretting about the future or obsessing about the past. They have a sense of present purpose. Like they're playing in a sandbox and they're building something and they know what they're working on and it's fun and it's joyful. And the moment that it's not like they tap out and there's not, you know, and it's sort of like that age before the level of self-consciousness and concern kicks in where you like start to like modify who you are based on whether you feel like you're going to be welcomed or not. You're just who you are. You just show up and you're like... I feel like we are, most of us are fortunate to be born into that space. Not everyone, because I realize there's a certain amount of circumstance and privilege that folds into that. And we spend our entire lives trying to get back there without realizing that's really what we're trying to do. How have you navigated that with your own kids? Yeah, it's been interesting because, you know, as a parent, you can say everything on the planet. It really doesn't matter what you say. It's, you know, you got to, you got to live it. You got to model the behavior because kids, um, we have one daughter, she's 20 now. And, you know, it's all about watching how you live. It's the same with me and my parents, you know, like, I think it's pretty much any kid and any parent, doesn't matter what you say, like, show me, show me that something actually is important. So we've tried to model 
a lot of our values and a lot of our beliefs and a lot of the choices that we make and then not exclude her from that you know so i'm a lifelong entrepreneur you know I, during her lifetime she has seen me run a yoga studio and teach yoga lead retreats globally exit that become an author write books uh, speak produce media launch a series of different companies like in the media space and she's seen all the different iterations and we have brought her into it a lot like you know not to the point where when you're struggling as an entrepreneur you know it would make her feel unsafe but we also allow her to see the fact that you know it's not always easy <laughs> you know and even if you yeah. feel like you're doing something that really matters to you and that you're on point and you care about what you're doing just because something is well aligned doesn't mean you're not going to work hard doesn't mean that you're not going to have challenges and roadblocks and stumbles that drop into your path and really rock you and that you're going to have to figure out how to move through them and that you're going to have to figure out how to do it in integrity and sometimes walk away or shut things down. So I think a lot of it is just trying to model the behavior and then allowing her to see enough of it and to participate in enough of it where she gets that it's not just giving lip service to something, but it's actually living it. You know, it's, it's funny. And, and I don't know what sort of like how you pick guests, you know, like for, for your conversations, for your podcast. But for me, from the earliest days, you know, we were filming video. I've been looking for embodied teachers, you know, and to me, like what that means to me is not somebody who's written a book about a topic or you know, like has a, like a Ted talk about it, or I want to look at the way that the person is making choices and living their lives. And like something about the way that they're walking through their lives is, is saying to me, oh, they figured something out. And I, I want to like, I want an opportunity to sit down with this person and, and ask them questions so I can kind of get a beat on what they figured out. So for me, it's always about embodied behavior rather than just sort of like intellectual knowledge. Because I think a lot of people can be experts in particular domains. Um, but if they don't actually, if the way that they move through life is in contrast um, to that, then it reads as pretty profound cognitive dissonance. And I, I have trouble believing what's being uttered. And I think it's the same thing with parents. So Yeah, it's that congruency that I think it really... It's like that that leads to almost like an effortlessness in life, you know, and, and I just got back from a conference where they were talking about longevity, you know, and they all want to live to 200 years old or 150 years old or whatever the thing is. And I haven't met a person in that space that I've been really impressed with the way that they show up. Not nothing, not to, to disparage them or anything like that, but I feel like there's a lot of like maybe a little bit of negotiation with their relationship with their own transition out of this body that could could be had but i think that the conversation that's not had enough is that sensation of congruency in your mind and in your body and if you can have that that relationship where it's like yeah you're not trying to be like anytime you're trying to be you're ex you're literally expending caloric mental emotional energy on that trying to be yourself and yeah i agree with all of that it's funny as you were saying that, and I think this ties into like the toddler thing that we were talking about, like learning from kids, this thing popped into my head. I just like this thought dropped into my head. And I'm like, you know what? We're born. And then from the moment we become self-aware, which generally happens like five, six, seven, eight for most kids, we spend so much of our waking energy trying not to die rather than trying to fully live. And then it's so it's such a beautiful thing to have those moments of there's something poetic or or maybe like even medicinal about being the sensation of feeling like I'm I'm almost like being annihilated. And that's the thing that's been told in every, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, yeah. Jesus Christ, like it's repeated over and over again. Like you come to that point where you you're you're crucified, you know, metaphorically crucified. 
and then yeah. there's this opportunity for rebirth. But you're you're terrified of that of the sensation of the initial death. But the, the initial death is what allows the rebirth, and it's like this whole the whole yeah. cycle. I mean, that, and and isn't that what the pursuit of security is? You know, absolutely. We're just holding on for dear life, basically. And I like, trust me, I get it. Like, you know, as, as a, I have a family, so I want to provide whatever illusion of security I can create. Like I'm, I'm grasping onto also, I'm human. Sure, <laughs> um, me too. But at the same time, yeah, I think, you know, hopefully I've learned to hold a lot of expectation a little bit more lightly um, and allowed for transition and evolution, which means like, like you said, you know, part of that is shedding. It's like a snake shedding its skin, you know? you have to allow that to fall away to a certain extent. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's just a natural process. But the fear of that, you know, a snake is probably not super conscious of, you know, like, okay, we're molting. Human beings, we're like, oh, hell no, I'm not letting this happen. And so how does this come into, I think oftentimes I, I get into like metaphysical weeds of what's, <laughs> you know, what's going on, what's, what's, what's really going you, on. You here. and me both. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on, how does this actually relate to my life? <laughs> And so I wonder, coming back, like, how does this kind of metaphysical conversation start to land tangibly back into showing up in a better way in relationships and showing up in a better way in, in your in your work and yeah. having greater ease in in your life? Yeah. So I I think it comes back to starting from a place of self discovery. I'm not aware of a degree program in college that's basically you know like okay so here's your BS in self discovery. Um, you know, we we're taught domain expertise, we're taught process skills, systems, but there's very little attention given to actually self-discovery and self-awareness, which is funny to me because how can you make discerning decisions as an adult if you actually don't understand why you're saying yes or no to something and, and whether it aligns well with the fiber of your being or horribly, you know? So a lot of my focus has been on like, okay, so let's let's deepen into that process of self-discovery. So I think you know, like a lot of what we're talking about is to do the inner work, you know, and, and not even instead of, but to do the inner work alongside of whatever outer exploration you're doing. So if you're in a moment where you're sort of in reimagining, which so many people are, you know, the, according to a whole bunch of different studies right now, anywhere from 25 to 50% of the people are quitting their jobs, many of them without actually knowing what they're doing next. And people are like, well, why is this happening now? <laughs> and I'm like, how could you not think this would be happening now? You know, and people are like, well, like everyone's pointing to these new circumstances that are supposedly behind this massive desire to do something different. And I'm thinking to myself, well, sure, those things matter, you know, like working from home, changing the workflow, the circumstance, the environment, and all these different things. But fundamentally, underneath that, you know, there has been a level of existential discontent and borderline burnout that is not new. You know, we've been living in the gray for a lot of years. And you see it in all of the data long before the last year and a half, you know, engagement levels, a sense of purpose, a sense of excitement, a sense of energy, a sense of performance in organizations. The numbers have been disastrous for decades. And even the last five years where there's been some improvement, we're talking about like one to 2% improvement. And, and people are like, well, this is huge. The numbers are going up. It's like, no, it's actually awful. You know, yes, there's a, a very slight improvement. So when you take that, when, you know, when you take a generational baseline of profound existential discontent. And then 
you rock the circumstances just enough so that it's sort of like you hit a tipping point. Then all of a sudden, everyone's like, okay. So that bargain that I probably made when I was 21 or 22 about what I was going to say yes to and what I was okay sacrificing, maybe I didn't even make it consciously. I just stepped into a job and then just put my head down and, and went. Well, I'm now re-examining that bargain. And I'm re-examining for the first time in my life the way that this thing that I've been doing for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years is making me feel what it's giving me beyond a paycheck, which matters, but it's not everything. And what I'm realizing is I don't want this bargain to define the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of my life, you know, because I want to feel this way. And this moment has rocked people to the core, but it's not new. It's just layered enough pressure onto, you know, a pot that was already about to just boil over that everybody's asking the big existential questions right now. And I think the starting point is, okay, so let's actually kind of like figure out maybe the first time what makes me come alive. Like what legitimately, what beyond the job and the role and the title and the industry and the devotion, fundamentally, what type of effort, what type of work gives me that feeling that I really want to feel? I think we're in that moment right now. So like a lot of the work that I've been doing around the sparkotypes and, and the book is really deepening into that question. You know, it's, it's, it's the fundamental question. What should I do with my life? You know, and when most of us ask that, we're asking it in the context of work, even though we don't realize that that's what we're asking. And I think this is a moment where if we can understand what are the deeper drivers of effort that give us that feeling of coming alive, and then look at the universe of possibilities and opportunities now. And that may be, by the way, just reimagining the work that you're doing so that it's much better aligned with who yeah. you now know yourself to be. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to blow things up and start over. In fact, I think that's generally the worst first step for most people. But I think it's a moment that you know we're all being invited to do the deeper work. You have a really beautiful ease and receptivity to you. Do you feel like that's a product of meditation? Do you feel like that's a product of banging your head up against the wall for years and you know being like, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work? Do you feel like it's a really admirable characteristic that I get from you? Yeah. So, so half of it is complete illusion. You know, half of it is like, okay, so if you could actually see what was happening inside of my head, like I spin also, but also part of it is, yeah, I do think a very long-term devotion to a practice of mindset training and stillness cultivation has helped me in so many different ways, find places of equanimity and relative ease in moments of groundlessness that don't necessarily have a clearly defined end and where the stakes can be really high. And a lot of that, you know, it's really the last decade, 10, 12 years of my life that I think I've been able to to access this place more readily because I'm I'm a maker, which happens to be one of the sparkotypes. Like I, from the time I was a little kid, I open my eyes and the, the fundamental impulse is to make ideas manifest. It's the process of creation. And I so I've been building stuff from the time that I was a kid. And as I get further into life, the stakes tend to rise, whether it's a company or a brand or a book or a, like a media property or a show, whatever it may be. You know, when I'm a kid knocking around duct taping together bicycles, it's not a big deal. You know, although I may end up like coming home with scrapes when the bike falls apart, when I'm jumping the rock at the end of the block. But now if I build a business and it blows up and, you know, I've got a family to take care of, that's scary. And, and there have been moments where I've danced with that. But I think for sure, developing a practice and having both long-term tools in terms of a mindset practice and also more intervention-based tools to come back to baseline level of ease, like breathing. Um, those two things for me have been incredible and movement also. You know, like to me, 
like the, the, the trifecta of meditation, breathing and movement is, is life changing, you know, and I will, to the extent that my body allows, you know, continue to deepen into them and modify them to, to suit whatever capabilities or limitations I have for the rest of my life, because it feels really good, but also because I realize that it, it allows me to, to do the thing that I'm here to do and not feel utterly destroyed inside while I'm doing it. I think it's interesting. When I hear breath and, and movement, I often think of it as like being a, a compartmentalized thing that you do, as opposed to the awareness that like, as we're having this conversation, we're breathing and moving. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Apparently say, we it, do this all day, every right. day. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. You know, and so there's, there's an opportunity there to start to integrate those idyllic romanticized, you know, principles of like a breathwork practice and a, a movement practice. Maybe I'm swinging my arms up over my head. Or I'm doing some, you know, all this crazy stuff. Well, that's just communication. Yeah. You know, and so the same way that a kid's able to infuse that play into just their humanity, the way that they navigate their day, there's the opportunity to infuse those same healing principles into just who you are as a person. And I think it presents that sensation that a person might get after a yoga class, you know, that that's sensation of, of what I'm describing with you, that receptivity, that groundedness, that sensation of like, ah, oh, like everything around me is just information. And then I have the opportunity to respond. And you know, like, that's, that's my opportunity. That's my, that's my, my responsibility. And then everything else is just, is just happenings. Yeah. And so I think we can start to infuse that awareness into the way that we navigate our daily life. And then we have the opportunity as opposed to reacting to situations, we have the opportunity to actually, you know, respond from a collected place. But I think it's that compartmentalization of like fitness, movement, breath, work, relationship. It's it's really it's it's a challenging way to, I think, live one's life in that in that manner. Yeah, I, I love that take. I'm so glad you brought that up also. Because I think you're right. I mean I look at, yes, I have, like, I have a defined sitting practice. I have a defined breathing practice, but I don't do them just so that I have the practice. Like I don't do them for the way that I feel when I have the practice, you know, and also they're, they're not, they're sort of like, it's like, they're my minimum daily practice. It's not like, you know, when I get up off the mat, okay, sweet. I just like, you know, I was mindful for 25 minutes, although like the truth is probably two out of those. I was mindful and the other 23, my mind was like in a million different directions. And now I get to just like go and like be, you know, like completely irrational and reactive the rest of the day because I did my practice. It's like, no, it's a way that you just move into your life and interact. You know, like it infuses, like I do the sitting practice and I do like the formal practice because the repetition over a period of months and then years, it starts to automatically infuse into like every, the way that I just move through the day. The, the formal practice, practice reminds me, it like trains my body and my mind to just more readily and automatically access those states throughout the day. And yeah, it's like, and they're not the end of that practice. Like you said, you know, like I'm, yeah. I'm breathing all day long, you know, I'm constantly monitoring. I'm constantly trying to like figure out like, how can I, you know, like I'm feeling a little bit of stress right now. So I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm yeah. better now. It's just, there's, um, that said, you know, there was most of my life where I was like, I don't meditate. I don't do breathing practice. I don't do stuff like that. Like my, my form of that is just movement. I was a gymnast as a kid. I was an avid rock climber and then mountain biker. And I was like, I access all those things simply through movement and everything that I need, I can get through movement. And 
it got me pretty far. And I definitely access that state. Like if, you know, if I was riding fast on a mountain bike through like single track in the trees, if I lost focus for a heartbeat, I was in the trees. I was, it, it wasn't pretty. Same thing when I was a gymnast. You know, if I lost that, that momentary hyper focus, you know, when I was on a high bar, I was gone. Like I was flying across the gym. But what I've learned over, over time is that um, for me, at least, Movement alone gets me to that place in really profound ways. But a, a formal sitting practice or a formal dedicated practice adds to it in a way that is different and complementary to just a purely movement-fueled practice where hyper-focused and attentiveness and awareness is mandatory in the activity itself. So I think there's like a really interesting interplay between the, a formal practice and just living your life infused with movement and with breath and with mindfulness and awareness. I think they play together really nicely. Um, and the, the real magic happens when you allow it all. There's a quote that comes to mind from Viktor Frankl as something along the lines of those that if you don't, if you lack purpose in your life, you'll just be perpetually seeking pleasure. You mm. just go from pleasure to pleasure to pleasure to pleasure to pleasure. And it's like this whack-a-mole kind of sensation. You know, and it, it's like being able to come back to that place of something, something deeper, I think really is like some level of solution for a lot of that kind of ongoing dissatisfaction or like looming sense of disease. You know, and I just so greatly appreciate you presenting a tool for people to be able to start to dig into that aspect of themselves because I think it's you know from like a, a fitness or health perspective I think we we kind of get a little bit mired by exercise you know and being like the thing but I think that's you know if you really examine your life what you do in your life is you work you know most people you know when you ask them it's like hey what do you like to do or what do you spend your time doing or what it's like you're, you're asking me what I do for work like that's what do I spend my do I, I work like that's <laughs> that's you know, so to be able to come back and, and actually be able to come from like a, a full, you know, centered, you know, speak from your heart of like, this is what I do from work. You know, it's such a beautiful, beautiful gift. So I appreciate you sharing a tool for that. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been amazing, you know, for me to dive into it. And when I start a lot of these projects or research endeavors, it's generally, you know, like, because I'm curious and it, I want to apply it to myself. I want to understand what's happening underneath the hood of my own life. And then it rolls out into other people and then it becomes things that I make. But, you know, for me, just knowing, you know, that fundamental impulse for me is the process of creation. And what's funny is for when most people find out what their sparkotype is and, you know, like they take the assessment, it's freely available for anyone online. So when they find out what it is, they will all of a sudden start to link a whole bunch of different things together. They'll be like, oh, so this is... This is why this made me feel really good and alive. And this is why this wasn't working. Or maybe I'm diagnosing like the job that I have right now and realizing that with this overlay, well, of course, like I literally have zero opportunity to express this intrinsic impulse that gives me the feeling of meaningfulness and purpose and joy and flow. And where this other thing I was doing five years ago, it was like all about that. And that's why I felt so amazing. It just, it allows us to not just know ourselves better, which is cool, like it's fascinating to be able to, to sort of have language and say, oh, this is a really powerful impulse that's been inside me my whole life. Now I know what it is. I know how important it is. I can describe it to other people because I have language around it. But the more important thing for me is it lets you make better decisions. You know, it seeds discernment. So for all those people that we've been talking about that are in this moment of their life where they're re-examining, like, how am I going to show up at work? What do I want from my work? 
beyond a paycheck, beyond status, beyond prestige, beyond benefits. It lets you know yourself on a level that allows you to discern what's going to give you that feeling and better say yes or no to a job or a new project or a new team or reimagine what you're doing in a way that gets you closer to that feeling. Right now, I think we need that on an individual level, but I also think we need it in society writ large. You know, we've got a lot of wicked problems and we need people showing up motivated to do astonishing work for no other reason than it's the thing that they're here to do and functioning on a level where we can work together and perform at our best and as our best selves so that we can solve a lot of what's going on in the world. We can figure out a way forward together and collaboratively. Like I kind of feel like right now, yeah, this matters on an individual level, but it also matters on a global scale. Like whether it's the Sparkatize, whether it's, you know, like different tools, like go learn all, you know, like explore whatever is available to you just so you can get more pieces of the puzzle to understand what makes you come alive and how you can show up in that way where you're fully lit up because you need it as an individual. But on scale, we just need people to be functioning closer to that baseline more than ever. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful connection of the impact that it has globally, which I don't think you've, you meant this from an environmental perspective, but I think it would, it would even trickle into that, you know, because if there's, there's an alienation or separation from your relationship to your, your body, that will trickle into your work and trickle into your relationships and trickle into your relationship to, you know, the body of the planet or the rivers nearby you, or, you know, and if you have an alienation from your work, then you know, like an alienation anywhere is an alienation. It'll, it'll, it'll start to seep out everywhere else. And so any place that we can gain an, an anchor to use the same language you use and to start the conversation of something that like, you know, we, we can really care about. I think that that becomes contagious, you know, it, it moves through the rest of the system and work is just, it's, I mean, it's just such a huge aspect of our lives. So to, to really, it's worth putting the energy into examining and saying, is this, does this light me up? Because this is, you know, how I'm going to spend three quarters of my life. <laughs> you know, and if it doesn't, you know, it's, it's at least worth an assessment. Yeah. And by the way, even if we're not talking about like the thing you get paid to do, it's like some people, the primary form of work is a, is a, is a central role or devotion. You could be a parent or a caretaker or a companion yeah. you know, and that's the central thing that you do. It's still work, you know? So I, when I use the work, I'm, I'm talking about it almost more like a physics level where like anything that requires you to exert effort towards some sort of like desired experience. And for a lot of people that, you know, it's a blessing if this is a thing you get paid to do, but also you may spend the vast majority of your time in a particular role or devotion where it's not actually your job, but it is, you know, like central to who you are and it is truly work. It is your work. And whether it's the thing that, you know, gives you a paycheck or it's your central role or devotion, having that level of alignment, like you described, you know, just having that piece of the puzzle, it, there's a ripple effect that moves through the, you know, our physical body, our mental well-being, everything. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed this conversation. This is a, a gorgeous, this is a beautiful way to start my day. I feel like I'm very grateful for Yeah. No, I appreciate you inviting me. It's, it's always awesome to talk. So people can take the Sparkotype quiz. Yeah. So it's Sparkotype assessment and it's available online. It's just at sparkotype.com, S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E.com. It's completely free for everybody to take. What would the experience for people be in that? And what would they get from that? Yeah. So the average person takes probably around 10 to 15 minutes to complete it. It's the algorithm behind the assessment actually is dynamic. So it actually is trained to kind of observe how you're answering questions and it will dynamically change the number of questions that you get based on discernment 
tolerances. So it's designed to actually try and nudge you to really think. And then what you'll get from that is what we call your primary shadow and anti-sparkotype. So your primary sparkotype, think of it as your strongest impulse for work that makes you come alive. Your shadow sparkotype, you can even think of it as sort of like your runner-up, your next strongest impulse. We often see a more nuanced relationship, which is that you do the work of your shadow in order to do the work of your primary at a higher level. And then the anti-sparkotype is the work that tends to empty you out the easiest, um, require the greatest amount of recovery. It's the heaviest lift and generally requires the greatest amount of external motivation to get you to do in the first place. That doesn't mean that you don't have to do it. It may still be a part of you know a job or a role or devotion, but to the extent that you can do more of the work that fills you up and less of the work that doesn't, you know, that, that things tend to feel a lot better. And even if you still do have to do some of it, either because it's part of your job or because it's actually aligned with a set of values that are really important to you, you'll understand why it's making you feel the way you feel. You'll understand that you may want to build skill around it just because a sense of confidence may help offset some of the energetic emptying that comes with it, but it'll also likely never give you anywhere near the feeling that doing the work of your primary or shadow will do. And that tends to give you a sense of understanding and fulfillment that's really important also, and, and forgiveness at the same time. Right. And people can get sparked now. It's, it's out. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And you know, you'll get sort of like a, a basic result when you take the assessment you know, like for free. And then if you want to go a lot deeper into what your unique profile is, yeah, the book Sparked is basically, you know, the one place where I've poured everything that I've learned about all these types into it. So it's sort of like the encyclopedia of all 10 types. Amazing. And then you also have the, the Good Life Project if people want to have more, yep. more from you from that. Twice a week podcast, been going for, man, I can't believe it's almost a decade now. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I greatly appreciate this time. If you come out to Austin, let me know. And uh, likewise, I'll hit you up if I make it out to my alma mater, Boulder, yeah. Colorado. That'd be awesome. Right. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. John is an absolute legend in the world of media production. So it was such a beautiful thing to get to share his mind here today. If you want to share this conversation, it felt relevant to you. Anyone looking for more purpose or passion in their lives, um, you can tag me at a lion podcast on the Instagram. Be like the place. You can also tag Jonathan Fields at Jonathan Fields. Once again, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this with your friends and your family. It is such a dang honor and pleasure to get to share these conversations. So if it's meaningful in your life, share it around. And if you are interested in grabbing books, online programs, things of the sort, you want to work on your mobility, uh, self-care, strength training, things of the sort, you can jump over to alignpodcast.com and everything you need is over there. All right. Big kisses. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week. Bye.